The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Leo Panich. We spoke about his recent article in the latest edition of Tribune on Ralph Miliband and his classic book, The State in Capitalist Society, which was published 50 years ago. We chatted about the significance of the book, how Miliband conceived of the state, the accusations of instrumentalism made by some of the book's Marxist critics, and its relevance to the Corbyn project. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has loads of brilliant left-wing titles that might be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Fully Automated Luxury Communism by Aaron Bastani, a manifesto for a different kind of politics, for a new kind of society, beyond work, scarcity and capitalism. You can find out more about the book at versobooks.com. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Leo Panich is the editor of the Socialist Register and the author and co-author of many books, including The Socialist Challenge Today, The End of Parliamentary Socialism and Working Class Politics in Crisis. You say in your article in Tribune magazine that in the state and capitalist society, Ralph Miliband begins by rebutting the pluralist account of the industrialized democracies, which at the time was most closely associated with the political theorist uh, Robert Dahl. It's a theory which sees power in democratic states as being dispersed, characterized by competition in which different interests, whether it's business or left-wing parties and right-wing parties, the unions, the churches, um, that all of these different institutions are able to advance their views. And these are translated into policy, not necessarily equitably, but that all of these different aspects feed into it. And so one can't really talk about the dominance of a particular class. And in, in that sense, it's very contrary to the Marxist uh, view of the state as as, as as Marx put it, a, a committee for managing the common affairs of the, the whole bourgeoisie. C- could you say something about that pluralist perspective that Miliband was seeking to critique? Yes. Uh, when I was a student, an undergraduate student, capitalism didn't exist. Uh, that is, uh, what we uh, studied was a world uh, that was not analyzed at all uh, in terms of it being a capitalist world. The world was made up of various different interests, 
uh, and states responded to the uh, influence, the pressure that came from these interests. And uh, it was recognized that they were asymmetrical in uh, their degree of pressure, especially in relation to a given policy area. And, and the state was largely seen as a uh, vehicle of policy pressure and deliverance. Um, of course, you know, this was an era in which uh, the economy was called a mixed economy, um, and, and uh, it was you know, part of the propaganda of the time, and which was reinforced by political scientists and sociologists, etc., uh, was uh, uh, that, that capitalism was a thing of the past. You know, by the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, uh, everyone recognized the world as capitalist, even before the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Um, uh, politicians themselves were explicitly speaking mm. uh, of the world as capitalist, Reagan, Thatcher, etc. Um, and policy was oriented increasingly to making that functional. Uh, so Miliband was far-sighted in the sense uh, that he insisted that uh, one needed to understand the various interests uh, in terms of their location in a capitalist system, and uh, that was his great contribution. And I must say, it was one that was made as well, uh, not only against political scientists, against sociologists, etc., uh, but against politicians like that of Anthony Crossland, you know, one of the great heroes of the Labour Party in the post-war era, and to this day, uh, seen even by the centre-left as a inspiring figure, whose book, The Future of Socialism, in the mid-1950s, said that Marx was a genius. Um, but that from, uh, you know, the end of the Second World War on, his theory was no longer applicable to a society uh, in which uh, labor had equal power with capital vis-a-vis -vis the state uh, and where financial capital within capital uh, was no longer a major force. Um, and and you, know, you can see uh, how in today's world, uh, and even then, of course, uh, how bizarre a conception that was. I mean, I, I suppose part of what might make that plausible to someone like Crossland is is that if you're living through that period, you, do, you don't necessarily see the contingencies that make the post-war settlement possible. So uh, obviously we have the unusual degree of state intervention, which um, happens in the wake of uh, the Great Depression and particularly the Second World War. You have capitalism being forced into a sort of uh, capitalism with a human face because of the threat of the communist bloc, which has enormous prestige during that time in a way that it's sort of easy to, to, to forget now. And also there's that very sustained capitalist expansion, high growth rates, uh, you know, what the French call the, the Trente Glorious, the uh, 30 Glorious Years. Um, what do you think it was about Miliband that allowed him to see the, the contingent nature of that situation and to recognize the world he was living in as still a, a capitalist one? Well, he was hardly alone. Uh, and, and people who uh, retained uh, some critical and and class analytical uh, perspective during the course of uh, the post-war era 
uh, many of whom are inside the Labour Party, could see it all around them. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, people today like uh, who, who look to Karl Polanyi uh, as having, uh, uh, you know, been the theorist of the post-war settlements and someone who um, people go back to uh, in, in terms of a model. Polanyi was utterly dismayed by the limits of, of what the labor government had accomplished in uh, the post-war era and was writing about this in uh, when he was living in Leeds in, in the newspapers with regard to education in particular. Uh, the enormous limits of the educational reforms introduced uh, by the labor government, which he argued were reproducing a class society. It, it was clear all through that era from the introduction of wage restraints by Stafford Cripps, the uh, Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer by 1948, um, that the reproduction of a class system was going on. Uh, in my first book, uh, Social Democracy and Industrial Militancy, uh, I quote a cleaner in Whitehall, a member of the Transport and General Workers Union, a woman who gets up at a trade union congress where Cripps is calling for wage restraint from the unions. And she says to him, and he, of course, was a famous vegetarian, Stafford Cripps may be able to live on radish tops and orange juice, but he can't expect the British working class to do the same. Uh, you're already getting by the late 40s and early 50s, not only the economists, but also the new statesmen arguing that redistributive taxation has gone too far. Uh, uh, and that private investment is the motor of the system. And this is getting in the way of it. And of course, as one's living through uh, the, the Marshall Plan, which is so important to the rebuilding of the Western European economies, etc. Um, you, you see uh, uh, the first shock therapy being applied, the first IMF structural adjustment programs being applied as a condition for the, the application of the Marshall Plan. One didn't need to be um, you know, uh, you know, it, you, Miliband was not uniquely far-sighted in this respect, um, and and uh, what he did was important, and and um, essentially one should see the state and capitalist society as a response to Crossland above all. Although, of course, Miliband teaching government at the LSE uh, was taking on the much broader political science and political sociology literature uh, that was premised uh, on, on exactly the same approaches. So, you know, I, I think that having a creative, non-orthodox class analysis allowed people through those years to see uh, how wrong, even then, uh, those who were living through it uh, were. So the central focus of the book is Miliband's description of, of the state and capitalist society. And could you say something about that? How, what, is, uh, what is Miliband's characterization of the state? Well, here I think, yes, it's very important. I think that, as I said, uh, people who were creative Marxists could have the kind of a t class analysis who could see what was going on. Those who walked around with the notion 
which was derived from really the the paucity of conceptual analysis and Marx's thought about the capitalist state. Marx never produced his his much promised book on the state. Um, you know, they walked around with the notion that uh, capitalists rang up the prime minister on any given day and told them what to do as if capitalists had a unified voice, as if they themselves had worked out how the state operates or should operate in their functioning uh, in a capitalist society. Um, You know, there was this very crude notion of the state as being in the control of the capitalist class. Um, And and, uh, uh, what Miliband was working on was trying to develop a more sophisticated Marxist analysis uh, of, of the nature of the capitalist state, one in which one did not imagine that capital directly, directly instructed politicians, uh, including labor politicians, you know, as, as to what policy should be. Um, and, and in that sense, you can say that the majority labor government from 1945 on, really demanded that type of more sophisticated Marxist analysis, or the Rooseveltian administration of the 1930s demanded it as well. Um, when you know when Wall Street is calling Roosevelt a socialist, uh, how does one then understand it? So one needs a more sophisticated understanding, and and Miliband does it in terms of uh, the lack of a balance between labor and capital on any fair uh, and sober analysis of the degree of influence they have in the economy uh, in addition to the degree of influence they have on the civil service. Now, they may have a lot of influence on labor politicians, um, but, you know, as as uh, Frank Cousins, uh, the head of the Transport and General Workers Union, um, who uh, became the Minister of Technology and Harold Wilson's governor in the mid-60s, said, and he said that he knew more about what were the plans of British business when he was General Secretary of the T&G than he did when he was Minister of Technology. Uh, and as Tony Benn said uh, in, in the mid-60s, uh, when he succeeded uh, Cousins as Minister of Technology, he was appalled at the ignorance of the civil service uh, with regard to the trade unions, uh, what their proposals were, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, you needed a deeper analysis, and the analysis did have to do uh, with the uh, training um, and the orientations of the permanent bureaucracy, of the permanent officialdom. It, it also had to do, of course, with the much greater uh, resources that business uh, put into uh, the political system than did trade unions. Um, but it, above all, in Miliband's estimation, had to do with the common perspective that even labor governments, labor leaderships, increasingly absorbed, and this goes back to your first question, which is that capitalism was the best of all possible worlds. I mean, they may have called it the mixed economy, and they quite genuinely thought that capitalism needed reforming, but they had come to the view, uh, uh, a lot of them had held the view even in the 30s, um, that capitalism was the best of all possible worlds, and one of the reasons we wanted to reform it was to keep it going. 
In other words, they had ceased being socialists. Um, they had ceased uh, 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 having ambitions to get beyond capitalism, um, and their reforms were oriented uh, to structuring policy in such a way uh, as to not hinder the reproduction of capitalism. So when a civil servant came along and said, look, if you have the type of uh, unemployment insurance or the type of welfare state that is going to remove the incentives for people to go into the labor market. Um, if you don't take people off unemployment when their stamps run out, um, uh, they won't go into the labor market. And if they don't go into the labor market, uh, we can't have uh, a, a, them engaging in uh, production, especially under conditions of near full employment. Um, so, and of policies then you begin to look at them in terms of the way they may indeed be oriented to benefiting working classes, poor people, etc., but are structured in such a way as to benefit them when the within the framework of reproducing them as wage labor or reproducing their fear of being unemployed uh, in a, a capitalist society. And, of course, when you finally achieve full employment by the 1960s, uh, what Joan Robinson and Michael Kolesky predicted during World War II against Beveridge, which is that if you do have full employment, you will find that working people won't have the fear of uh, the reserve army of labor. That is, they will make high-wage demands upon their uh, employers, or they will refuse to work harder. Uh, when they are pressured to do so in the workplace because they'll know they can pick up a job uh, down the road the same day. Uh, and in those conditions, profits will get squeezed. And that is what happened in the 1960s uh, in every capitalist country. And insofar as there was increased competition transnationally by the 1960s amongst corporations uh, in trade and in investment, um, this had the effect of squeezing profits. Where it didn't squeeze profits, it, was, it produced inflation as uh, capital increased their, the prices in order to compensate for increased wages uh, and falling productivity. Uh, and the result was that the first labor government in the 1960s, uh, and it was repeated again by the second one in the 1970s, their main goal was to use their ties with trade unions to secure wage restraint from them. The role of trade unions, as far as Harold Wilson or James Callahan was concerned, was to use their special ties with uh, labor in order to get uh, their workers to accept uh, that they needed to reduce their expectations. Um, now, this comes from, in Miliband's view, as them beginning to share a similar value system uh, to that of uh, the capitalist class. Um, and and uh, that's a very important insight. You know, other theorists go further after him, uh, and I think rightly, maybe more abstractly, Miliband's great virtue was that he was very concrete in his analysis. Uh, other theorists were more abstract in trying to develop Marxian concepts to understand the, the state as a field of class struggle itself, um, as an arena of class compromise, etc. 
On that, um, after the publication of the book, Miliband comes in for for quite a lot of criticism uh, on the left for taking uh, what's sometimes called a, a, an instrumentalist view of the state, where the state is viewed as um, a more or less neutral instrument that can be wielded effectively by both the ruling class or by the labour movement if it succeeds in, in attaining power. Uh, clearly, there's... Um, this is a ludicrous... This was a ludicrous criticism. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to come on to that. So. <laughs> uh, and, and it was ludicrous precisely in the sense that what Mick Miliband was combating was a view that capital wielded the state as an instrument. He never for a moment argued it was neutral. The whole point of his analysis was otherwise. Um, what was at issue, perhaps, was the question of values, uh, as I was indicating, of the extent to which people inside the state adopted a, a orientation towards the capitalism being the best of all possible worlds and having to orient policy in that direction. More abstractly, uh, Poulantzas uh, was arguing that one needed to see the state as an arena of class compromises and, and uh, uh, class uh, power. Um, and and one can view it that way, although operationalizing that uh, was always much more difficult and much more abstract. Uh, Miliband was able to operationalize his approach much, much more concretely. Um, but, you know, I think that this, this version of instrumentalist versus structuralist Marxist approaches to the state was really produced by American graduate students uh, who had to write comprehensive exams. And in order to write a comprehensive exam quickly, you needed to create these categories uh, in which you slotted various mm. theorists. Um, uh, so, sure, there were debates between Miliband and Poulantzas, which did have to do on the how relative was the autonomy of the state. They both agreed that, that, that state actors were relatively autonomous from what capitalists would have preferred them to do. The question was, how autonomous? And Miliband, uh, who... Uh, you know, had been in the Labour Party and um, was, was rightly, I think, dubious about being able to carry forward an insurrectionary strategy within a bourgeois democracy, saw the possibility of uh, entering into government with a particular type of awareness of the degree to which the, change, the state needed to be changed in its structures. Um, earlier than Poulantzas mm. did. Uh, Poulantzas came to this view himself by the late 1970s. But the debate between them was really about how relative is the autonomy of the state. And, and, and I think Poulantzas recognized that himself in his debate with Miliband. In terms of, of the nature of, of that debate, I mean, there's a lot in Miliband's book where he, he talks about historic examples of uh, the left either getting into government in coalition or, or the few instances of, of left governments. You know, he talks about the Popular Front government in France in 1936. And he does place quite a lot of weight on the the strategy of, of, of these um, of these movements and these and these parties. Whereas it feels like there's a kind of a, a harder um, 
critique of the, of the state that you get from Palancas, which seems to suggest that y- you can go into the state with whatever strategy you would like, but the nature of the straight of, of the state will shape your your behaviour, and you it, it's almost as if you're sort of the bearers of of, uh, of state uh, craft in some sense. Yes, but then you can't change the world. Um, if insurrection is impossible, uh, uh, then uh, what else can you do except become strategically aware of how an immense a task it is uh, to operate within the framework of liberal democracy in order to transcend it? And Poulantzas ends up in that place. The great tragedy of the post-structuralist, post-modernist, uh, the Laclau and Mouffe shift uh, in the 1980s was just as Miliband and Poulantzas were turning their attention to much more uh, thoughtful approaches to, well, what type of strategy do we need to transform state institutions rather than a critique of, of bourgeois theory, whether of pluralism or of, of you know, monopoly capital theory, which Poulantzas was really doing. Um, they, just as they were turning their attention in the late 80s to this, most uh, new left uh, intellectuals moved, uh, as did Marxism today, etc., and and did the Laclau move orientation, entirely away from that question of the state, uh, of, of further improving the Marxist theory of the state. Those of us who kept up with that became increasingly fewer uh, in intellectual circles. Uh, and that was one of the great tragedies, I think, of the turn away from the very creative development of the late 60s and 1970s that I uh, grew up with intellectually. Um, uh, it was really one of the, the most unfortunate aspects of what happened. I think we're returning to it now, uh, and, and I think that's a very good thing. It's a bit like reviving uh, uh, with the Corbyn moment the Benite attempt to transform the Labour Party, the campaign for Labour Party democracy's attempt to transform the Labour Party. These two things are connected. Uh, When Tony Benn said we can't democratize the British state unless we first democratize the Labour Party, uh, he didn't realize it, but he was engaging in the same intellectual trajectory uh, that Miliband had been, and then by the 80s, of course, they both, having had no contact with one another in the 70s, I introduced them um, uh, in, in any substantive sense. Um, uh, you know, they came together to, in, in the social society, trying to carry that politics forward practically. I suppose... Um Thinking about the, the the strategic conclusions you you might draw from reading uh, Miliband's book, it seems to me there are sort of there are there are two conclusions you could you could draw. So on on the one hand, you could read it as being a sort of a very thoroughgoing description of the state, which you know demonstrates that the state is um, quite a quite a, a, um, a diverse field. You know, it's not enough just to conquer the executive; you have to win across a range exactly. of institutions. Um, but then I suppose there's a, there's an even more uh, pessimistic view, which which perhaps might be the view of Palancas, which would would be to say yes, that's all correct, 
but also you need to really sort of uh, disorder and transform the, the the very nature of state practices and the very structure of these state institutions. It's not enough to sort of win broadly, which one could take from Miliband, but you need to win broadly and transformatively. Yes, but you know, I, I again, I, I think this is a matter of idiom and and uh, emphasis, mm, yeah. not of fundamental disagreement. Yes, I mean, I'm not saying uh, one of those is Miliband's position, but that's sort of two readings you could take. Yeah, uh, you know, Miliband, uh, uh, you know, is very clear as you say that when one needs to delimit the institutions of the state and uh, understand that government is only one of those institutions. And when you are elected into government, you're not elected into power, as he explicitly puts it. And he spends time delimiting the range of institutions. A difference with the structuralists, an important one and a major arena of the debate between Miliband and Palacios, was that uh, the Marxist structuralists defined the media political parties and trade unions as part of the state. Whereas Miliband's argument was that that precisely doesn't recognize the boundaries that exist in a liberal democracy between the state and the institutions of political society. Uh, It doesn't understand the differences between an authoritarian capitalism and a liberal democratic capitalism. Um, and, And that becomes very, very important. In other words, it brings us back to, if you can change the Labour Party, how essential is that to being able to develop an adequate strategy and capacity to change the state? Further, Uh, How necessary will it be to change the trade unions in their uh, capacities and orientations in order to be able to change the state? So at the end of the 70s, Joran Therborn says, uh, and he comes out of the structuralist tradition in his book, What Does the Ruling Class Do When It Rules? He says that the public sector unions are going to have to become the cadres of transforming the state because it'll be their members who would actually have to change the internal structures of the apparatuses in which they work in a fundamental way. Well, that would involve the trade unions becoming schools for socialism, as Engels once called, Marx and Engels once called them, in the sense of developing the understanding and the capacities of their members to transform the institutions in which they work. Pulantzas Miliband would have agreed with that. Um, And uh, that's not to say that they articulated that as well as Therborn does at the end of what is the ruling class would do what it rules. But that's precisely my point, that Marx's theory was just getting to the point of working that out uh, in the late 1970s when the intellectual and political tide turned, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a um, it, it's a good point on that turn that Palantas makes, which uh, I, I guess he, he gets from Althusser of, of, as you say, including uh, so much of civil society as part of the state, because uh, I, I believe they included uh, the churches as well, which seems slightly bizarre. Now. Yes, <laughs> the, the media, the ideological apparatuses, etc. And that became one of the major debates between them, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it seems uh, remarkable to think of um, the Church of England as an as a, uh, ideological state apparatus today. <laughs> it just doesn't seem... Yeah, although, you know, if you read Miliband on this, what he's trying to show is uh, the degree of value coherence between those organizations uh, and and the degree of socialization of the people who rise to positions of power within them, uh, which uh, orient them to, uh, you know, not challenging the structures of capitalism. Uh, and, and indeed, the, the structures, the hierarchical structures of the state that are so important to reproducing it. Um, so, you know, that's what he thinks needs to be shown rather than assumed. And insofar as you could have a leader of the Church of England who is critical of capitalism, who is critical of the, of the hierarchical structures of the state, you would begin to develop chinks in that armor. Uh, so it is, that's the difference between a more structuralist and a less structuralist approach, if you like. Uh, it's much less likely you'll get that in the Church of England and you'll get it in Unite the Union. Uh, uh, for reasons that do have to do with an understanding of class position and class struggle. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.